Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Welcome, and I have uh, the privilege of reading scripture for you this morning. And I'm reading from John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing that was made has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everything that was coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world was made through him. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of God. morning, church. You guys found your way here today in the midst of the fog. Uh, This is good. I I was thinking this week about an article that I came across. Oh, I love this. Like, there's really good seats up here, guys. It's so nice being close to you. Yes, it's good. There are people in here. Um, I I, I came across an article in the Golden Mail a couple years ago. I took a picture of it, lost the picture. So what I'm going to say is true. I just don't have an author name for you, okay? But it's true. I did read it. It As a a Muslim author, she's a female author. I think she was Canadian, and she was touring a book. She's from Montreal, but she was touring a book in Toronto. And, uh, And as a devout Muslim, she had come to the point where she thought, and she had sort of decided that, the problem with Islam is the teachings of Muhammad. And if we could just get rid of the teachings of Muhammad and get Muslims to stop following them, um, that Islam would be a better religion. And she said, what, what we need to do is just sort of a move towards being, and sort of the, the interviewer said, so what, what, what do you have then if you take away the teachings of Muhammad? She said, well, we have a religion of peace and, and love and, and goodwill to people and, and to actually just make a difference in the world. And, and this was her solution for what, um, and she was a devout Muslim, but this is the, the conclusion she had come to. And I think, um, you know, we sort of think, oh, that, that's kind of strange, but actually the prevailing, one of the prevailing views um, about religion in, in the culture and the world that we live in is, you know, everybody just needs to dial it down a bit. You know, like, you, and especially as Canadians, we're like, you believe what you want to believe, just don't believe it too much. Because when you believe it too much, you start doing crazy things. And, and that's right. And we, like, we call it fundamentalism, fanaticism, like kind of radical religious beliefs. And we think, okay, radical religious belief is one of the main problems with religion and the world around us. And I understand how, how people can say that because there's a lot of things that are done in a sense passionately in the name of something or some religion of faith that we go, that's destructive. That's not a good thing. 
And if you look at Christian history and the history of the church, whatever you say, like there's lots of black marks in the history of the church. The issue is this. The black marks in Christian history are not when the church was believing too much, but when they weren't believing enough. A couple of weeks ago that I said to you that the problem with Christian faith and Christians is not that we are too radical and too um, committed to our beliefs, it's that we're not committed to them enough. And when the church is not committed enough to what they really believe, that's when it gets into trouble. You might say, well, why do you say that? Well, because as Christians, little Christs, it, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be radically, fanatically committed to following Jesus, is to be more like Jesus. And I said to you that if the two and a half billion people in the world who call themselves follower of Jesus were actually a little more like Jesus, even some people, I think, who say, well, I don't believe in the Bible, and I'm not sure about God, and I'm not sure about Jesus, they would all be thankful that the ones who did follow Jesus were becoming more like Jesus. Because Jesus was a radical. But his radicalism didn't lead him to hurt people. It led him to love people to the greatest extent. It led him to love people that nobody else loved. And he was so scandalous about how reckless he was with God's grace and love that people said, God cannot be this gracious. You are including people that don't belong. And in, and in the end, they killed him for it. That's what the radical lifestyle of Jesus looked like. And so if the followers of Jesus actually lived out what we say we believe, the world would be a better place. And I think many other people would come to say, well, maybe I wrote off Jesus too soon. And so we're doing this eight-week series called Beyond Just Belief because there's, for many of us, maybe that we'd say, well, I grew up in the church, or even if you didn't grow up in the church, sort of have a general idea of what you think Christians believe or what you think you're supposed to believe. But that actually say, no, what is it that we really believe? Because sometimes even what we think we believe is just as a result of an article we read or somebody we raised with or a certain kind of tradition that we grew up and say, no, what does the scriptures actually reveal? The scriptures are our revelation. What do they reveal about what is it that we, we believe? And if we really believe that, the, the premise that I sort of put in front of you was, is if, if my heart, my heart, like Melissa sort of encouraged us to page, if my heart really believed, what kind of person would I really be? And so we're taking these, these sort of eight weeks to do this. Now, last week, if you were here, and if you've missed the first two weeks, like, got to grab them online. It's part of the story. But Mark sort of left us, in a sense, with a bit of a cliffhanger last week. Because this is where we went the first two weeks. Went with this idea that we, as human beings, the reason we crave relationship, intimacy, belonging, is because we were created by a God who is in community. We, we are created by a God who's in relationship. What Christians believe, the Trinity, and I'll time to unpack that whole sermon that there's 35 minutes worth of that, you can go into that. But the reason we believe God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, still one, but three persons, is he is a God in community. And when a God in community creates out of that sense of love, of course he creates beings that are starving and longing from the day we are born to the day we die for affection and love and longing. It's one of the reasons that I believe we must be created and not just happened on this earth. Because why is it that the one thing we say we know for sure is love, right? It's the, it's the thing that's most real to us, even though it's the thing we have the hardest thing to define. We would say the relationships we have in life, the things we feel for our family or for parents, or even the, the biggest fractures in our lives come from relationships. The greatest hurts, our greatest pains come from relationships. Why? Because love makes the world go round. We would say that's the truest principle. We say, well, because the uniting principle of the universe is a God of love in community with himself, and therefore everything in the universe revolves around relationship. And as we said 
That explains us. It explains God. And yet, what happened, as Mark said, the, the death blow to every relationship is a lack of trust. Right? Pat Lencioni, who's a, a sort of a famous uh, management consultant, uh, runs an organization called The Table Group. He wrote a book called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And he said the very first dysfunction that breaks apart every team, and you can think about this, of every, every sports team you ever played on, every business team you're a part of now or whatever, what destroys every team, the foundational principle is trust. Trust, a lack of trust, is the death blow to every relationship. And this is actually, Mark was explaining to us, this is what sin is. Sin was essentially God's creation that he made saying to him, we don't trust you. Yeah, we know you created this world and you said some things, but we don't actually believe you more than we believe ourselves. You think about sin that way, right? Sin isn't doing, simply doing bad things. It's essentially saying to God, we don't trust you enough to believe you. I think many people who say they don't believe in God, actually, they just don't believe God. There's trust issues with them. And Mark explained how when we shoved God out of the center and said, we don't really trust you, that in a sense we're left to our own devices, God says, okay, well, when you're left to your own devices, you're going to have pervasive trust in every relationship that you have. That, and so that, that the first marital spat, in a sense, started in Genesis 3, right? The first human conflict. So, so not only were human beings sort of separated, broken trust with God, but it began to break trust with each other. Suddenly Adam and Eve were blaming each other. We see there's this perfect union and relationship in the family and it starts to break apart. No, it's no surprise then a chapter later, the first murder comes into the world, right? All of the sin, and if you think about it, all of the sin and dysfunction in the world is relational. And it's not just with each other. We see that Adam and Eve actually being, even distrust themselves. They, they were ashamed of themselves. The, the, I think, I think the, the human condition, the greatest sign that we have sin in our lives, the human condition is insecurity. Every single human being is insecure. We are constantly longing to feel like we are worthy, like we are um, worth looking at, we are worth hiring, we are worth loving, we are worth investing in. Like It's this pervasive insecurity. Why? Because there's something with myself. I don't even trust myself. Right? Trust broken, fractured to every human relationship. And, and, and Marx has sort of spent a while last week helping us understand this is your human condition. You're born with it. Sin isn't simple. Simply about, you know, choosing to do bad things. It all comes from this pervasive insecurity and the sense of distrust between each other with ourselves and with God. And so as human beings in the story of, of our lives, we are left in this place going, who is going to fix this thing that is broken on every level between us and God, between each other, between me and myself and my own psyche? Who is going to mend what is broken? We said, in, and actually, in fact, that, that sin is actually a hopeful word because it's a diagnosis. But it's only hopeful if there's the possibility for a cure. And so it leaves us at this point, and, and regardless of your faith background or what do you believe about Scripture, you would probably agree with me, yeah, that kind of summarizes the human condition. And we are in a place where we need saving. We need something to change. And, and that was sort of where Mark brought us to a little bit of a cliffhanger. And this is where every religion in the world comes in. And it comes in with this, a stairway to heaven. And she's buying the... I, do, I actually do a really good Robert Plant. I'm not... Uh, some of you are like, who's Robert Plant? We'll pray for you after service today, okay? <laughs> stairway to heaven, right? If, if the thing that's broken is this trust relationship with God, well, we can get back to God. Or we can get back to fill in the blank, supreme consciousness, ultimate reality, nirvana, whatever it is, we will find our way back. And even though religions are all, in a sense, very different in 
what the stairs on the stairway to heaven look like, all of them are prescribing the same things. We can ascend. We can climb. Whatever the holy place is, you got to go. Whatever the holy book is, you got to read. Whatever the holy things are, you got to do. And whatever the names of the gods or whatever it is, or if there is no God. In, in the Enlightenment movement, when, you know, sort of in the in, um, uh, 19th century, when we sort of eliminated, in a sense, religion, human progress, education, intellect became the stairway to heaven. And so we have put that and said, and every religion says that, and here's what you need to do. And even for those that say, oh, I'm an atheist, well, what are the stairs? Their education, their enlightenment, their sort of human potential, their innovation, whatever it is, money, we can climb that stairway to heaven. And I think in like thousands and thousands and thousands of human history, we can look at it and say, actually, the stairway to heaven is quite limited. And it seems to be man-made, and anything that's man-made at its best becomes limited, and at worst becomes a tool of corruption and oppression in the world. And that's where we find ourselves. And so we're in this place where we are longing to sort of repair or kind of get, even if you want to call it being at one with the universe or whatever people from different faith systems would describe, we know something has become unhinged. We think that the stairway to heaven is the way to get it, and yet every stairway is bankrupt. Every stairway comes to the end. And all it does is lead to pride because everyone is telling what everyone else is what the stairway is. And God, in this move, you know, we find the Christian story is actually, that's not what it describes. The Christian faith, as we find revealed to us in Scripture, does not describe a stairway to heaven. In fact, what it shows us, even from the early pages of Scripture and the Old Testament, the first sort of part one, is actually we see a picture of God always moving towards his people. No stairway, God's saying, I'm coming to you. One of the first things God said to Israel as he gathered in his people, he says, you are my people, you belong to me, I belong to you, and I will live with you. If, if Eden, right, like the, the, the perfection of creation as it was, was centered around, in a sense, the presence of God with the creation he has made, that he was in intimacy and relationship with them. What we see, even after sin comes into the world, even human beings with all of our pervasive distrust of God and distrust of each other, God was unrelenting in his desire to meet with his people. It is a myth, it is a lie that the God of the Old Testament is this sort of angry God who's sitting here like this, like we would, right, with people who wronged us, waiting for them to get their act together so we can say, I told you so. You know, this is sometimes the picture we have of God, and actually that's totally false. What we see all the way through Scripture in the Old Testament is God moving towards his people. And sometimes he would come in this cloud, you know, like uh, last night we're driving in this, if you're out in the road in that fog last night, you could not see anything. That's a, a dense fog, okay? There's this picture of God in the Old Testament coming to dwell with his people like a thick cloud. And it was like, never mind, you can't see the next highway exit. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was this picture of like an overwhelming cloud. Or sometimes he would come like a fire in a burning bush. Other times like an earthquake or sometimes like lightning. And it's this picture, not of the God of wrath, but just God saying, you don't know who I am. Like the immensity of God. We see, but why do we always see it? Because he was always trying to get to his people. And he would say, Here, here's how, build me this tent. I'm going to live in this tent. They'd be like, does God really dwell on earth in a tent? And it's like, no, but the cloud comes. Or a fire comes. And like, it's this picture of God constantly, actually, relentlessly pursuing the intimacy and the relationship that had been lost by distrust. The heart of God is saying, I'm coming to you. You are mine. I'm not letting you go. 
I am moving towards you. But it's always sort of awkward, right? It's like, you ever try to hug a burning bush? Like, you shouldn't, you know? No one put up your hand, right? This is like, it's like the, the, this tension, in a sense, we feel with like the, the, the very finite nature of human beings and this infinite, all-powerful God. And it's like God was saying, I'm more intense than a fire. I'm more overwhelming than a, than a thick fog. Like, I'm more electrifying than lightning. Like, I'm more uh, powerful than an earthquake. The intensity of who God is and with his people, and yet they continued to kind of distrust him even though he wanted to move towards him. They continued to say, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Or we don't really know you. There was this distance between them, and it wasn't because God's lack of desire to meet with his people, but they didn't understand him, and they didn't understand how their lack of trust just kept separating them from him and from each other. And so we see God do something, almost the unthinkable, and Malcolm read it for you, and I want to read just a little bit of that passage again. On what God did, and this is the beginning of one of the biographies of Jesus, and uh, the disciple John says it this way. In the beginning was the Word. Who's the Word? Spoiler alert, Jesus, okay? In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and he says the Word was with God, so Jesus was with God in the beginning. Now, the words in the beginning would have reminded sort of any Jewish listener or Jewish reader about the first three words of Scripture, which describe creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so John's saying, in that beginning, that beginning, the Word was with God. Jesus was with God in that beginning. In other words, Jesus wasn't created. He was with God. This is one of those verses, like I said, you, where Christians started to piece together, wait, maybe God is three in one, like this one of these confusing verses. Like, what is he saying? And the Word was God. Jesus was there in the beginning, created the world. He was with God in the beginning. And then he says this, through him all things were made. In other words, Jesus was part of the voice that was speaking the world into existence. In other words, Jesus isn't part of creation. Nothing was made, without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. What darkness? The darkness of the world we live in, the darkness of distrust and mistrust. And he says the light is brighter than the darkness. The darkness couldn't overcome it. Then jump down to verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. Irony, right? John says, Jesus actually made this world, but when he came into the world, the world didn't recognize its maker. He came to his own. In other words, those who belonged to him, those who he had made, but his own did not, his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And it says this, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is one of the things that as Christians we say we believe. That is, that God, in his constant, undeterred, unrelenting desire to be with his people, finally went to the greatest extent possible to make himself known to them. He became flesh. It's a picture of, it just actually says, oh yeah, this has always been the character of God. He has always longed to meet with us, but there's always things that separated us. So God went to the greatest extent possible to be with his people. He comes not in a cloud or in a fire or in any other abstract overwhelming way, but in a way that is so common. And he said he came, he became flesh. He became one of us. He became like us. 
So much so that other, some people were like, he's just a human being. He was so ordinary, so common, so fleshly. Like Christians don't believe that Jesus was God, but he came and appeared like a human, but he wasn't really a human. Or he was kind of an avatar or whatever, like some representation, but not really real, not of the earth. But no, Jesus actually became. Jesus, who was with God in the beginning, became flesh. He took on flesh, clothed himself in the sense with flesh so that he would be visible to people. This is what Christians believe. And we believe this happened through the virgin birth, that Jesus had, in a sense, a physical birth, but he was not created, and he was not made like in the way that every other human being was made. You can imagine Mary like doing the birds and the bees talk with James, the brother of Jesus, and saying, and that's how babies are made, except for your brother. Uh, I, but I don't have time to get into that, you know? Like, this is, it was something else. Now, we don't have time to get into the virgin birth. I'm not being dismissive of it. It happened. You want to talk about it after? We can talk about it after. But like I said to you, in terms of what we believe, it's not so much how, but why. Why would it have been like that? Why did it matter that God came to us in the flesh? fully God, fully human. Well, the clue that we actually have is this word that John keeps using. It's light. The word light in this passage, he says it over and over again. If you read the rest of John's gospel, John's version of the Jesus story, he constantly talks about light. It says Jesus is the light of the world. And the idea of light, especially in sort of the Greco-Roman culture, was this idea of illumination, like understanding, right? Like when the light goes on, you can see things. Well, John is saying, look, Jesus is the light of the world. In other words, he's the one that comes to help us see. And John says in verse 14, we have seen. Oh, we get it. We, and he's talking about we, the disciples, the other followers of Jesus. We see now that which before we couldn't see. And what is it that Jesus came into the world to help us see? The two things we needed to know but could not see. And when we say see, the two things we couldn't understand, we couldn't see. Jesus came to show us who God is, and who we are. True divinity, true humanity. Jesus came to show us who God is and who we are because this is the problem with trust, right? Because Israel and the people of God couldn't get close to him, they couldn't get close enough to him to know, to know him because if we're going to trust someone, we have to know them to be in close relationship with them. We don't trust strangers. We don't trust people that we are far away from. And God says, I know even though you shouldn't, you constantly distrust me. So I am going to come to you in a way that will reveal myself in the flesh so you can actually see and know who God is. He didn't leave it up to their imagination. And you know, many people say, well, it's hard to really know who God is. And we say, no, it would have been. But now we know. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. The scripture said that Jesus is the full, complete revelation of God. This is stunning in a human being. Jesus came to show us, if you want to know anything about God, look at me. Look at my life. And we actually have four, which is really unique, actually, in, in any other worldview. We have four different accounts of the, of the life of our founder, which is Jesus. They're, they're different. They all say the same story, but they say it from different ways. So there's actually a lot of writing to help us understand who is Jesus so that we can understand who God is because our, our deep distrust of God comes from the fact that we don't know him. And so God comes to reveal himself to us to say, I want you to know me. This, God's, think about this. The, God went to the greatest extent 
possible so that we could know him. This is how we know God is a God of love. You can't know God is a God of love just by looking around at the world, right? Because there's a lot of good things in the world and there's a lot of difficult things in the world. How do we know that God is love? Because he revealed himself in Jesus and he says, I will, there is no, if there is a stairway, it's, it's one direction, I'm coming down to the greatest extent, to the right to your level. And he didn't come as a king. He didn't come as someone of importance. He came as a poor person. He came as someone who sort of lived in a, a Galilee, was kind of a backwater town. Nazareth is not really the center of culture, of faith or art or anything. He came in a sense from the margins. He made himself so accessible. This is how we know God loves us. Jesus says, this is who God is. You're not too dirty and too messed up for God to come and eat with you and be close to you. He came to show us divinity, but he also came to show us humanity in a sense because you know what? We don't just need to know God. We need to know who we are. Do you know more than ever? You may, what do you mean we don't know who we are? Do you know more than ever in history we are questioning our identity, right? We're at the point now where we're saying to kids, they're growing up in school, you have no gender. You have to decide. Like we're, we're questioning even ourselves. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be human? More than ever in history, our identity in a sense is up for grabs. We're not sure. Isn't that crazy? Thousands and thousands of years of human growth, human wisdom, intellect, advancement, science, technology, and we are more confused than ever about who we are. And this isn't just about gender identity or sexual orientation. Every one of us has those feelings, those days, those moments ago, who am I really? You know, am I just a product of what I do, my job, who loves me or not? The life stage that I'm in, what I've been able to accomplish or not? Who am I really? We don't know because we have become unhinged from the one who gives us our identity. And so Jesus didn't just come to show us who God is. He came to say, this is what true humanity looks like. You might say, well, what, what does that actually look like? Well, I, did, I just made a list if I just concluded from Scripture. What, what does he show us about who God is? Now think about this. And, and maybe there's just one of these that needs to land with you to say, yeah, I know what, I forgot that, or I actually didn't know that. But this is from Scripture. I didn't make this stuff up. Jesus shows us that God is a God full of grace and truth. We want them both. Does anyone know the answer to ultimate reality? <laughs> yes, God is full of truth reality, but he is also full of grace. That means we don't get what we deserve, and what we don't deserve, we get. It's a way better principle than karma. Grace turns the world upside down. God full of grace and truth. God is just and merciful, right? And we, we want to know that God is going to judge the wrongdoings in the world. Like, who's going to are we relying on a court system or a justice system to make sure that everybody who's perverting justice, oppressing people, trafficking humans, selling kids into slavery, we need to, is somebody going to prosecute these people? Is somebody going to right the wrongs? And we know that God is just. Jesus went after those who were powerful and wealthy and self-important and were using that to oppress other people. He had his harshest words for people like that. So we know Jesus says this is who God is. He does not let injustice go. But he's also full of mercy. Jesus was even merciful to the unjust people. He was merciful to those who were being oppressed, but he also was always inviting the rich and the powerful and the self-important to say, hey, use what you have in the service of others. He was so merciful. This is what we, don't we want God to be like this? Both 
He can't just be a happy grandpa who pats all his kids on the head, even if some are killing each other. It has to be just. But we want him to be merciful because we're all grace junkies, right? We want everybody else to get what they deserve of God. Please don't give me what I deserve. Right? We want him to be just and merciful. Here's another one. God hates any religious activity that blocks people from really knowing him. How do we know that? Because Jesus did. Anything that had lost its ability to be a pathway to God and instead had become an obstacle, Jesus removed. And with a little bit of anger, he said, this, not, this should not be. God is more powerful than the evil that is in this world. In Jesus' confrontation with darkness and evil, we always see him victorious. That's why that song we sang, you have no rival. There is no evil or darkness that is so thick and comes against us in the world that God is not able to deal with. That God cares for our physical needs as much as our spiritual ones, right? God isn't just interested in your spiritual life. He's interested in your life. Jesus was not just a wise man on a mountain handing out sort of spiritual philosophical advice. He was with the people, healing them, feeding them, caring for them, sometimes finding money to give them so they could pay their taxes. This is how concrete was God's presence among them and his care for their whole lives, not just their spiritual well-being. God sees past the surface and look at the, looks at the heart. This is who God is. God uses his power to serve and love others. <laughs> right? This is how God uses his omnipotence, his, his all-powerful nature. God uses it in the service of those who are weak. Because this is what Jesus did. This is how we know what God is like. And you wouldn't know it without Jesus. Right? In a sense... Without Jesus, God remains at a distance somewhat unknowable, and we might hope the best about him, but we don't know for sure. And Jesus says, I have come that you might have life. I and the Father, we are one. I'm only doing what my Father has asked me to do. I'm only showing you what he really wants you to see about who I am. Isn't that amazing? He shows us who God is, but he also shows us what does it mean to be a human being. And I listed a few <laughs> that it's possible to be strong and still be completely humble. Hey, don't we need, don't, don't our workplaces need leaders who are strong and humble? Who are powerful but humble? Who are authoritative but not authoritarian? Isn't this what every business needs? Isn't this what every marriage needs? It's people who are strong in who they are and yet humbly willing to use who they are to benefit the other person. Isn't this what every relationship needs to say? Humanity, humility isn't weakness. It is strength under control in the service of others. And Jesus, and Jesus showed us a picture of that. He was no doormat. Sometimes people were afraid of him. And he was so humble, so loving, had nothing to prove. <laughs> Jesus also shows us as a human being, sometimes loving someone means you have to say difficult things to them. That love is just not nice feelings and saying nothing and just letting people make terrible decisions that destroy their lives, but we love them too much to say anything to them. That's not what humanity looks like, according to Jesus. Jesus was full of grace and also truth. This one, which our culture really has a hard time believing. Or sorry, the third one. Love our enemies and do good to those who hurt you. Jesus actually modeled this. What does it mean? To actually, he says everybody loves people who love them. But 
but love your enemies and do good to those who hurt you. Jesus shows us what is that, and he doesn't just tell us, he did it, right? The cross, on the cross, he's saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. The picture of humanity, of someone who is strong and is able to forgive even those who are against them. And then this one, it's possible to live a fulfilling and purposeful life without being sexually active. Our culture just does not believe this. This is why we're saying to people, you have to know what your sexual orientation is so that you can express it because it's not, you're denying yourself. You're not a human being if you're not a sexual person. If you're not actually sexually active, you don't know who you are. And Jesus actually comes to us in an age when it was not appropriate or normal for a man to be single and comes as a single person, as a sexual being, yes, but not a sexually active being and yet still lived a fulfilling and purposeful life. The beginning of scripture tells us sort of man and woman together in marriage. Good for them to be together. Jesus comes and actually, and it's okay, it's good to be on your own too. Jesus redefining what singleness and humanity looks like. That it's possible to live a called life. It's possible for a human being to accomplish extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit. The stuff that Jesus did in his life was not because he was God, but because he was a man totally filled with the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that he says he gives to each of you, and that's what he says, greater things than I have done will you do. Because I didn't do them as God, I did them as a human being full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus shows us the extraordinary life through the power of the Holy Spirit. He shows us as humans that whatever honor, power, or riches we are given, whatever stock we have, while we are always saying, why don't I have more? Jesus says, well, why do you have so much? And how are you going to use what you've been given in the service of those who have no power, have no wealth, and have no importance? That's what the purpose, Jesus, in a sense, gives humanity a new purpose to redefine what it means to be wealthy and powerful and have social importance. Jesus says, okay, if you have it, God's given it to you to bless other people. It is a picture of humanity that I believe our world is longing to see. And then maybe most important, Jesus shows us that we too are sent into the world. Just like Jesus was sent into the world with a message of forgiveness, reconciliation, justice, and hope. You know, he was, he was the light of the world. But then he said to his followers, you're a city on a hill. I've sent you out to be a light in the places you go. The message that I came to you with, that God is not counting his sins against you, but today is an age of grace, a day of grace to be forgiven, to be brought back into a trust relationship with God, that this is why I came. Now I send you with my light into the world around you to tell the world God is not counting your sins against you. Today is a day of forgiveness and grace. Be reconciled to God. Come back home. This is a picture of humanity. When you say, well, what's my purpose in life? It's that. Whatever life stage you're in, whatever job you have, however much money is in your bank account, what is my purpose in life as a follower of Jesus is to be sent into the world just as Jesus was sent into the world with the light that gives life to all human beings. Saying, come back home. This is our calling. This is what it means that God has become flesh to show us true divinity. What is God really like? And these are just a few of the things that we will find as we read the stories and the accounts of Jesus to show us what God is like, but to show us what we, who we are meant to be, true divinity, true humanity. And so to follow Jesus is to know God more and to know ourselves more. 
to know what it is to be in a trust relationship with the one who loves us and cares for us and gave us a purpose in life, but also to know what it is, how we are meant to treat our fellow human beings, how we are meant to understand ourselves and our identity. That's why. And it's not like a download that God gives you here, a boom, you understand everything. It's a life one step after the other following Jesus, saying, Jesus, teach me more. Show me more about who God is and show me more about who I am and show me more about how I'm supposed to interact with the people you've put me with. And so really my, my encouragement to you is follow Jesus. <clears throat> For some of you that don't know him, I'll just say that you can creep him out in the Gospels, okay, without, without like making a commitment. You know when you go on Facebook, and I know none of you do this, but you creep out people. You're not ready to make a contact with them, but you just want to read their profile and, and kind of know, look, you can do this. Okay, this is why we have the Gospels. You may say, I'm not ready to commit to Jesus. I'm not sure. We'll just creep him out in the Gospels. Just like, just follow him a little bit. There were lots of people in Jesus' time who kind of walked at a distance, just around the edges, not wanting to get too close, but just sort of going, I wonder if what people say about him is really true. You can do this. You may say, I'm not sure. Okay, but follow at a distance, read the scriptures. And, and there's a couple things that came to mind as I was thinking about that. Explore his teachings. Look at the teachings of Jesus and, and just see in them, isn't there wisdom in this? Like there's things that we say now that we just take as common wisdom that first came out of the mouth of Jesus. Explore his teachings and say, this is a kind of extraordinary wisdom. Examine his life. The more you read about Jesus, the more you discover he's the kind of person we all long to be. He's the kind of boss everybody wants. He's the kind of spouse everybody would want to have. He's the kind of friend or family member everybody would want because he's full of grace and truth. He's passionate, powerful, yet so humble. Full of wisdom and truth, yet even more full of mercy and grace. Examine his life and think, maybe I drew two quick conclusions about him because of what somebody in my science class told me about or someone in history, or something, and I actually need to find out for myself. So follow, even at a distance. Consider his claims. You know, might he really be the son of God? You can do this, follow him. And then for those of you that say, yeah, no, I, I am a follower of Jesus, well then, follow his lead. The apostle Paul said to the early church, be imitators of Christ. Follow him in the way that he lived. He shows us actually how to live. And one of the questions I have for you and I ask myself is, what does it mean to imitate a God who went to the greatest extent possible to mend our broken relationship? I mean, how quickly do I get frustrated with people or give up on relationships or feel hurt and want to move on when I see, oh, wait, wait, but I worship a God who went to the greatest extent possible to mend a relationship that we broke with him. What does it mean to follow a God like that? Who is unrelenting in his pursuit of reconciliation. What does it mean to worship a God like that? What does it mean to follow his lead? What does it mean to imitate and follow someone who used any power and importance he had in the service of others? What does it mean to imitate him so that I stop saying, God, why don't I have more and say, okay, why do I have so much and what do you want me to do with it? What does it mean to imitate a God like that? And what does it mean to be a light to others? 
you know, the craziest truth about all these things because Jesus isn't in the flesh here anymore with us, right? He, he, he went up into heaven, and we will see him one day. But then you say, okay, well, well then how are, how are people now supposed to see Jesus? <laughs> Jesus is through you, your life, yes, imperfectly. But as you follow me, you give people a reason to pause and say, why are you like that? Why are you choosing to do that? Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. It's, it's that we, in a sense, are meant to be the light of the world. And ask the worship team to come up and lead us. But I want to ask you, you know, like what, what kind of people would we be if we really believed this? I think it would help us. You know, I realize that, that so much of the pervasive worry and anxiety that I have in my life is because I don't really trust God. You know, I, I don't trust him with my financial situation. I don't trust him with my health. I don't trust him with my kids. I don't trust him with the work that I have to do. <laughs> I'm always worried. And when I worry, I've, I've stopped trusting him. And the more that I really believe that Jesus has come to show me who God is, the more that I follow Jesus, the more I am able to trust God and take him at his word. Every bit of sin in my life comes from a distrust with God. And so what would it mean to say, okay, in this moment, with this issue, with this relationship, with this matter, with this circumstance ahead of me that I don't know how to navigate. I trust you. What would it mean? And I think it would make a great difference in the world around us because I believe we live, as I said, in a culture and an age that is desperate to know what it means to be human. What does it mean to be a human being fully alive? In the midst of our brokenness and our shortcomings, and our failures, that as we actually follow Jesus in the way that he leads us to live as human beings, we present a picture to the world that the world is desperate to see. It's not a perfect one, but it's a picture of humanity that someone says, I think there's something true about that. And so as we worship together, I just give that to you to say, okay, Jesus, you know, and even if you're not sure he's there or here, you know, with us, I want, I want to see you. John says, we have seen, we saw, we now know who God is. We are beginning to understand who we are. And so your prayer this morning, your simple prayer to Jesus say, can you help me see?